to introduce our last study in the prophecy of Hosea. Our brother Tennant has asked us to read from Hosea chapter 14, the last chapter. With quiet attention as our brother Cyril Tennant leads us in the last study entitled, O Israel, Return unto the Lord. My dear brethren and sisters, before I commence my talk, let me thank you all for letting us share with you the uh, blessings of this camp this week. Once again, sampling your generosity, your kindness, and the warmth, and your company and fellowship. And of course, not forgetting Brother Lang for letting us share with him the duty of this part of the island, which really belongs to him. Uh, perhaps I feel that if I had this kind of territory myself in my own garden, I'd keep it to myself. And it's a very good thing that Brother Len shares it in this way and regards it as being something which belongs to us all. Well, now we're going to look at chapter 12, chapter 14 mainly this morning. But what I would like to do is pick up the thoughts of chapter 12 to start with, where we read about the name of God. We'll see chapter 12. You remember... We look at verse 4, which said, He found Jacob in Bethel, and there he spake with us. God found Jacob in Bethel. God actually looked for Jacob, who at this time was lost, was not knowing where he was going. Later he wrestled with Jacob and gave to him a message. The important thing is that that message was for us. And the important thing, I believe, in all Bible exposition is that we must see in that exposition a message designed for ourselves. God is speaking to us through his word. This is a living word. It is alive for every generation. And we must never think of the Bible as being pure history. It is a message alive. It is for us. Every word is for us. Now we come to verse 5, chapter 12. Even the Lord God of hosts, first of all, the greatness of God, he is the Lord God of hosts. And if you take your concordance and look up the word hosts in scripture, you will note that God is God of the hosts of heaven, the stars, is the host of all creation, the host being all nations, is the host, the God of the host of Israel. In other words, he is God of everything. He is the supreme creator, the supreme Lord God. And you'll notice the Yahweh name comes in in verse 5, spelt in large capitals in verse 5, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial. And linked with that in verse 6, we have keep mercy and judgment, or mercy and truth. So linked up with the memorial name, we have those two remarkable qualities of mercy and truth. And we have already spoken of the wonderful marriage of uh, mercy and truth, or grace and truth, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now, let's just follow for a moment the memorial day. And let's go back into Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. <clears throat> I don't want to get involved in a deep exposition on the memorial name. What I want to try and pull out from Scripture this morning is a very simple understanding of what it is. 
First of all, we have Moses, who sees a bush burning and is not consumed. And the message, I think, that comes through that is that God would speak with his people through Moses. The bush, you'll notice, did not support the fire in any way. It was not itself consumed. It did not cause the fire. The fire was in the bush. And so with Moses, he was not going to contribute to God's message. He was going to be merely the mouthpiece. God was going to be the flame. Moses was going to be the bush, as it were, uh, to the children of Israel. Notice what God says. Verse 7. I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver. That is the progression of thought. I've seen, I've heard, I know, I am come down. God was intimately involved in the history of the children of Israel. Right from the time when they were brought out of Egypt from slavery, God knew their situation. And right up through the days of Hosea, God had been in their midst. He had been their God. He had known their problems. He had known their sorrows. He had come down to deliver. But the sad story is in Hosea that they did not listen. They did not receive his deliverance. It is in the context of these words that I have seen, I have heard, I know, and I am come down to deliver that God gives unto Moses this name in verse 14. I am that I am. Say unto the people, I am, hath sent me unto you. I am that I am. First of all, that name in the Hebrew conveys to us the certainty of God's existence. I am that I am. It contains also the unsearchableness of his character. He is, he exists, we can't know all about him, but it, it is all there. And it describes also in this context the absolute dependability of God's purpose. So we have those three things contained in the name uh, to build upon as a basic foundation. The certainty of God's existence, the unsearchableness of his character, and the absolute dependability of his purpose. Now, God declared unto Moses and to the people through Moses that he would deliver them. And it is in the context of deliverance that this name, I am that I am, is given. Can be, of course, and <clears throat> perhaps ought to be thought of, as I will be, that I will be. Because God is not bound by time. At any moment in time, <clears throat> he is what he is. At any moment in time, he is unsearchable. His promises are absolutely dependable. He is always the same. So we can't limit him to I am being in the past. Nor can we limit him to being I will be in the future. Always he is I am. And so we see God moving forward with every generation all the time. He is always this kind of being and will always be this kind of being. 
But of course, tied in with the I will be is the promise of the fulfillment uh, of the purpose mentioned here, the deliverance. Now, he came to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. They very quickly destroyed themselves again. And later, as we have been seeing this day, this week in Hosea, they destroyed themselves absolutely irrevocably. Nevertheless, this is a purpose, this is a declaration that God will do something. He will fulfill his purpose. Now turn through to Isaiah 45. <clears throat> so we have the name of God introduced in the context of salvation, in the context of deliverance. And the whole purpose of God, built into that name, I will be that I will be, really speaks out to us of the fact that God is a deliverer, he is a saviour. And in saving mankind, God is going to confer upon those who are saved his own divine nature. He will therefore be revealed in all those who approach unto him and participate in this offer of salvation. But notice now, in this 50, 45th chapter of Isaiah, that we are reading basically about God as a saviour. Verse 15. Very thou art God that hidest thyself, O God of Israel, the saviour. Verse 17. But Israel shall be saved. In contrast, verse 20. Those who assemble themselves and draw near, who pray unto gods of wood, their graven images. They pray unto gods that cannot save. I think it was John Carter in one of his books which pointed out that one of the main characteristics of God is that he can save. There is no other being, there is no other thing that can bring salvation to mankind. God and God alone can be our saviour and in this he is absolutely unique. We may trust in wealth, we may trust in our families, we may trust in our ecclesia, whatever else we select, sooner or later that something will let us down. Sooner or later we will see the limitations of whatever we are trusting in. But that is never to be seen for as God is concerned. God is our saviour. He always will be what he will be and always will be our deliverer. Now, verse 21, the end of the verse, he goes on to say, I think we ought to read the whole verse, actually. Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Saviour, and there is none beside me? And that we need to remember, brethren and sisters, day after day, hour after hour, and minute by minute. It is God and God alone that is our saviour and in whom we shall, should depend. Now look, he says, look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not it return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear or confess, as the word really means. So we have this situation that God has given to Moses this special name which describes 
the certainty of God's existence, the reality that there is a God, the unsearchableness of his character and the absolute dependability of his purpose. He has given that name to Moses in the context that he will deliver his people. And here in Isaiah 45, God says, ultimately, unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Because ultimately, the world will be peopled by those who have been saved and whose knees will bow to him and whose tongues will confess him. But now turn over into Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, and notice how he is picking out from the person and life of the Lord Jesus Christ, not doctrine, though doctrine is essential and we must observe and keep it, he's picking out that which goes beyond doctrine to the change of life and to character, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, bowels and mercies. <coughs> Fulfill ye my joy, he says, and be like-minded. So we are commanded here by Paul in this letter to be like-minded to Christ. Verse 5 describes this somewhat. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. In other words, Jesus did not have his own mind. At least he used his own mind to subject himself to God, so that God's mind would become his. That God would speak through him and act through him. And he could say to the people, the words I speak are not mine, they are my father's. The works I do are not mine, they are his. He was, in fact, the word made flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was a perfect representation of God here upon earth. And so we read in verse 5, let this mind be in you. In other words, you too. Both of us, each of us, must look unto God and seek to make his mind our own. First of all, look at the perfection of this in Jesus, who, being in the form of God, we needn't tangle with these, with these words as if they present a difficulty to us. He was the image of God, the, in the form of God. He was a representation of God. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He was the Son of God who revealed unto us his Father. But he did not think it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't consider even seeking to be equal with God. He did not seek it to be a thing to be grasped at, to become equal to his father. We'll be considering this afternoon, uh, this week rather, with, with the young people, the, one of the parables of the prodigal son. Where the young man begins by saying, give me that portion of goods that falleth unto me. In other words, he can't wait until his father dies. He wants to take his father's wealth, and with his father's wealth, he wants then to vaunt his uh, own independence. And how many young people can be independent when they've got their father's money in their pocket? It's a very different thing to be independent when you have to stand upon your own feet. Now, here we find Jesus quite the reverse. 
In fact, what Jesus is doing is taking up the end of the story of the prodigal son. You remember, he begins by saying, give me, and he ends by saying, make me as one of thine hired servants. And in between those two expressions, we have the whole experience of the prodigal, and we have the whole Christian experience. We begin by thinking of getting, when we have learned through our experiences and reading of the word of God, we end by seeking to be made like unto uh, our father. Now Jesus here sought to be made like unto his father, and he let his father's mind dwell in him. He was, you'll notice now, taking upon himself no reputation, verse 7, took upon himself instead the form of a servant, and was in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and, verse 10, given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. The very words spoken in Isaiah 45, where God says, every knee shall bow unto me, every tongue shall confess unto me, are now used of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is through him that this deliverance is to be wrought. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ that, Jesus, that God is to effect his salvation. The I will be that I will be is revealed in the person of his Son. And in this sense, the name is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean it ends there. What it does mean is that God's purpose is now coming to fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, many sons will be called unto glory. And through him, ultimately, God will be that he will be in many people. But the fulfillment is in the Lord Jesus Christ because it is through him that all these things will be. And Jesus does refer to himself in this sense. And I'm sure those verses in John where Jesus uses the expression, I am, are related to the I will be that I will be. Jesus saying, I am bound in the purpose of God and fulfilling that declaration. Which, and verse 11, that every knee should bow unto him, every tongue should confess, but it is all to the glory of God the Father. They don't bow to Jesus, they don't confess to Jesus, they bow to God, they confess to God, and they do it through Jesus. And if there is any tendency uh, amongst us to want to pray unto the Lord Jesus Christ, then this verse helps us to get our perspectives right again. Of course, we are thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ for the work that he has done, the tremendous life which he lived, and the sorrow and suffering endured on our behalf. But it is God and God alone who is responsible for our salvation. And even the work of the Lord Jesus Christ means nothing, or would have meant nothing, had God not first of all given him to make atonement for our sins. Back now into Hosea chapter 12. <clears throat> Counsel to have mercy in verse 6, to keep mercy and judgment, to keep those very characteristics revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is the word made flesh. But instead, notice, he, the ten-tribe kingdom, is a merchant. The balances of deceit, a Canaanite that you oppress. Instead of mercy and truth, he has got himself into business. 
He's got himself tied up with commerce. He has become a mere Canaanite, one who is working and laboring to multiply his money rather than multiply his character and to be somebody. He is like the prodigal son getting, give me, instead of thinking in terms of make me. Now we have to work in business, we have to labor in the case of our own jobs, we have to earn money. The exhortation here is that these things must never be allowed to get hold of us. They must never become our masters. They must never become the sole thing we think about in our lives. And how many businessmen and high executives go to bed at night unable to sleep because they are thinking about the day's work and the toil which is before them in the coming day. If we get to that stage, brethren and sisters, we've gone too far. And it's time we gave up our job and took up garbage collecting or road sweeping or whatever because in the end, the kingdom of God is at stake. You can have your executive position now and no kingdom of God if that's going to be the situation. Or you can give up your position in your company now and have the kingdom of God when it comes. That is the reality of the situation as it's revealed to us in the book of Hosea. Ephraim said, verse 8, Yet I am become rich. I have found the substance. And how many of us fool our souls into saying that we have become rich and our business is successful because God is blessing us in it. We must be doing the right thing because God is blessing us with wealth. Don't be fooled, brethren and sisters. There are times when God uses a Daniel or a Abraham and gives unto them wealth and they use it in the Lord's service. And there are times when that happens today for which we're very thankful. Let us not use that as an excuse to describe what we ourselves, in fact, are not in actual fact. Now, God does go on to say in this chapter, yet he is their God, and he will ultimately be their deliverer. Notice in verse 11, is there iniquity in Gilead, the place of balm, the city of balm, where there ought to be healing, there is corruption, they are sacrificing their bullocks in Gilgal, the place which had such godly associations, you'll remember, Joshua. Now they are sacrificing their bullocks. They've converted the place of worship to a place of false worship. Then he says in verse 12, Jacob fled into the country of Syria. Israel served for a wife. And so we have the picture of Jacob going into Syria for a wife. And then God says by parallel in verse 13, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. In other words, my son has come from Egypt. My bride, Israel, has come from Egypt. So just as Jacob fled into Assyria for his wife, so God has got his bride from Egypt. Then in the next chapter, and of course there aren't really chapter headings in the original, he goes on to say, when Ephraim spake, trembling, he exalted himself. I think the, the real uh, interpretation here is when Ephraim spake, other people trembled. In other words, Ephraim was very powerful when first called by God, was exalted. But you notice what happens when he exalted himself, he died. And that's the reality. One moment we see Ephraim, the children of Israel, the head of the nations, 
delivered by God from Egypt. The nations around living in fear and dread of this nation who had a God who did so marvelous things, destroyed the Egyptian army. And the next moment we find that Ephraim is dead. And that is the kind of attitude of mind we have to get into our own minds, brethren and sisters. Either we live in God or we die in the world. We don't have a foot in each camp. It's one or the other, we make our choice. We live with God or we die with the world. Notice now verse 3. Three examples of the fleeting nature of the nation. Like the Jew that passeth away. Like the chaff that is driven by the whirlwind out of the door, out of the floor. And as the smoke out of the chimney. Three illustrations to show how transient was the way of life. The morning dew, which is gone already, gone a long time ago, even from the island, except where the, uh, the trees are shading it from the sun. The morning dew, so beautiful, first thing in the morning, when the sun rises, just disappears and is not. The chaff, which is separated by the wind from the kernel, which is blown away and goes nowhere except to feed the swine, as we are told again in the parable of the prodigal son. You want to spend your life with the chaff, which is there to feed the swine? Or do you want to spend your time like did the prodigal son, who would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave unto him? You want to spend your time clamoring and grasping for what the world has, and complaining and grumbling because you are not selected to have those things. Well, it's only the husks, and they are the swine who are eating it, and all these things will be sorted out one day. The smoke out of the chimney, which, as soon as it passes into the air above the chimney, just is dispersed and disappears. It has no substance, it has no quality, no character, no endurance. That was Israel. That is what belongs to the world. Yet, says God, verse 4, I am the Lord thy God. Notice in capitals, L-O-R-D. He is the deliverer, the saviour of his people. He will be that he will be. He did take them from the land of Egypt when that name was first given to Moses. And thou shalt know no God but me. For there is no saviour beside me. That is how the name is being spelt out for us now. Whatever the expositional value of the name might be, fundamentally it is a name which spells out to us deliverance or saviour. I did know thee, he says, in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. According to their pastures, so they were filled. But goes on to say they were exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. The story comes out repeatedly, time and time again, that man forgets God, goes his own way. Man will chase the husks all the time, thinking he sees in the husks substance. And all the time he is running away from God. He is going in the wrong direction. But God says he will be their God. Verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I will be thy king. Where is any other 
that may save thee in all thy cities. Now, since that generation perished, these words must be prophetic. God will be a king to the remnant. He will, we hope, be our king. And so, verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. What a wonderful verse. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will buy them back from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death or from mortality. Redemption is not just being given life from the dead. It is a change of nature. To be redeemed from mortality is ultimately to be a a partaker of the divine nature. I will ransom or buy you back from the grave. I will redeem you from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Now there's much more, obviously, in those chapters we could look at. But we're going to leave those and look now at chapter 14, which in fact gives to us a very lovely summary of the whole book of Hosea, uh, bringing together the words of exhortation, but painting again the picture of hope and peace, which indeed can be ours. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Now don't forget what Hosea has said. There God spake with Side 2 Although in the first instance we shall see in this chapter Gomer having returned to Hosea and that will enrich the figures of speech used in this chapter. Although we shall see in this chapter a message to Israel the message is really to us. Here God is speaking with us. And we make a big mistake and waste our time if we are thinking only of Israel as we go through this chapter. Return unto the Lord thy God. One good thing about Bible camps is that we have a time of beginnings. It can mark off for us a period in our life which can divide us from the past and the future. And we can go away from this place determined that we are going to be different people. Having seen ourselves this week in the <coughs> mirror of Scripture, we can now confess unto God what we have been, and we can decide in his strength what we are going to be. And as we leave this camp today or tomorrow, these are the thoughts that will go with us, God willing, and we shall think of the message of Hosea and the many other things we've learned during the week as we've been here together. But all this depends upon our making a conscious decision to return, to recognize, first of all, that we have been treading the wrong path. We have been going in the wrong direction. We have been getting ourselves entangled too much in what belongs to this world, and that pathway leads to death and death alone. O Israel, return unto the Lord, for thou hast fallen 
by thine iniquity. Nobody else was responsible. Thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. We sometimes blame the Ecclesia for doing this or that, or brother so-and-so for getting involved in this or that, but it is only ourselves we have to blame for what we ourselves do. We fall by our own iniquity, and this is something that we have to remember when we return unto the Lord. If we can think of Adam going out of the Garden of Eden with his back to God, as a man walking with his back to the sun, walking in the shadow cast by his own presence as he goes out into a new life, we have a picture of ourselves walking in our own strength and going in the wrong direction, and we have to turn right round and face God, face the light of the sun, where there can then be no shadow. And the wonderful thing about God, says James, is there is no shadow cast by his turning. If you take a light and turn it round, it doesn't matter which way you turn it round, it doesn't cast a shadow because it is light. It is only a substance held near to a light which will either catch the light or on the other side cast a shadow. And so if we are associated with God, we are freed from the shadows of this world and freed from the shadows of self. And John talks about walking in light, not walking in darkness. So, verse 2. Take with you words and turn unto the Lord. So as we return unto God, we take with us words. In other words, we pray. Now God knows the state of our heart and doesn't need that we express to him in words what we feel. He knows that. But he has so determined that prayer is a part of the Christian life. And when we fashion words in prayer, brethren and sisters, we analyze ourselves. The very thinking of a word of prayer and the very uttering of, of a word of prayer is self-analysis, self-condemnation, produces humility, and we plead the strength of God. Prayer in itself is remedial, Quite apart from the fact that God will bless us in our prayers, prayer in itself is a godly exercise. So we take words and we say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. Take away all iniquity. And sometimes hears it said rather foolishly, if only I could overcome this particular besetting sin that I have, I would feel much nearer to the kingdom of God. Once heard a brother say, if only I could stop smoking, I would be near to the kingdom of God. How far he was from the kingdom of God, he didn't really know at that time. The situation here in verse 2, take away all iniquity, is a confession the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That we are sin. That our thinking is sinful. That what we do, whether it be smoking or something else, is only an indication of this state of our heart. Stopping smoking or stopping doing something else doesn't change the state of the heart. 
What we must do is get right down to the cause, the reason why we do the wrong things. And that is what John talks about in the epistle where Jesus was manifest to take away sin and he was manifest to destroy the devil, to destroy human nature. And so take away all iniquity is a confession that there is nothing good about us. We are completely and wholly sinful. And this iniquity must be taken away. And until we are partakers of the divine nature, until we are bound up in that name of God, there will always be iniquity. So the sins we commit to one thing, but the iniquity that we are and we have by virtue of the fact or by vice of the fact that we are men is another. Take with you words and say, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. We have no rights before God. We can't go to God and say, I'm really trying to be good, therefore forgive me. Basically, we are walking in the wrong direction and basically our thoughts are not his thoughts. When we go to God, therefore, and confess our utter and complete depravity, we can only plead his grace. We can only say, receive us graciously. And we can only make the vow again that we will render unto him the calves or the sacrifices of our lips. Notice, not the sacrifices of our service, but the sacrifices of our lips. We are not able by our service to offer unto God an acceptable sacrifice because we are sinful people and we have the wrong motives. We can only talk about these things. And this is why the Apostle Paul has this dual, this conflict in his nature, wanting to do the right things and finding himself doing the wrong things all the time. And that is what is recognized here in the beginning of this chapter 14. The confession, Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless find mercy. All the things they had been doing, turning to Asher, giving a ransom that they might be saved in using the horses and horsemen of other people. Now they cast these things on one side. They cast on one side also their gods. These can't save us. But in God, the fatherless find mercy. This, brethren and sisters, is real repentance. But we don't just think to ourselves, well, uh, perhaps I am walking in the wrong way. I must be careful about what I'm doing. The real situation is that we come to terms with ourselves and say, we are going in the wrong direction. The things I am doing are wrong. I will not do them anymore. I will turn a different direction. For only in God shall the fatherless find mercy. I notice again how it is the the utter depravity of mankind, the hopelessness of mankind that is brought out in verse 3, the fatherless, those who have none to help. And it is the confession of those who regard themselves as being fatherless, who are without help, who seek mercy in God. When that kind of confession is made, notice now how quickly God responds. Again, like the prodigal son, who, when he was going back home, 
how that his father was already coming out to meet him. Who, although he had framed very carefully a prayer in his mind which he would deliver to his father, didn't have to deliver it all to his father because his father intruded and interrupted by showing his love and his affection for the son who had come back home again. Verse 4. Immediately, God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. Think, first of all, of Gomer, of what she must have thought when she first saw Hosea coming back to look for her. She had been in search of other husbands and had had a good time. But sin had done its worst. She was now wanted by no man. She could, in fact, be bought back for half the price of a slave. I wonder what she thought when she saw Hosea coming towards her in that moment. How she would hang her head in shame. The feelings of joy when Hosea came to her and said, we are going back home. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away. But the love of God and the turning away of his anger is dependent upon our turning away from the world. Don't fool yourself, brother, sister, myself. It's no use having nice feelings when we meet together in fellowship one with another. Those nice feelings of fellowship are fine, but they're only the tremors which should begin in something which must work out in a changed life. Unless we are prepared to turn away, we have just had a wasted experience. No more, no more important than those who may watch a film and have an emotional experience as they watch the film. Rebirth depends upon taking action and being associated with God. And for those who seek this, he will heal backsliding. He will love freely and his anger will be turned away. And now look in verse 5. I will be as the Jew unto Israel... Contrast chapter 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud. It vanisheth away. Chapter 13 and verse 3. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passeth away. And now we change from the Jew of man to the Jew of God. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. And Dr. Thomas spends a great deal of time expounding the Jew of God, how the Jew is born in the morning, and how the sons of God are begotten, born again by the power of the word of God. God will be as the Jew unto Israel. And it is in this wonderful morning of rebirth that the sons of the living God spoken of in chapter 1 of Hosea come to life. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily, shall cast forth his roots as Lebanon, 
His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree. Notice again a progression of thought. Starting with God who is the Jew. Growing as the lily, a figure of purity in scripture. Casting forth roots as Lebanon. There we have some stability and the fruitfulness of the cedars of Lebanon. The branches are spreading out and now his beauty becomes evident and a little later his fragrance becomes evident. Begins with purity. Following purity there must be the stability and then there is the growth which brings the beauty and the fragrance. Have you noticed what happens in this world? We start with the fragrance, you know. We try to put on the beauty in dress and ornamentation. And we think that because there is an appearance of someone who is attractive by dress or beauty we have put on, that everything is all right. Now God starts the other way. He starts with purity. He starts with the foundations, with a structural change. And it is only when the cedars grow that the beauty becomes evident. And that is how God works in our lives. And that is where we must start. Seeking to be made pure. Seeking to be purified by the influences of God in our lives. Seeking the stability, the roots, being rooted and grounded in him. As we might grow thereby. And as we grow, the beauty then will become evident. We had a discussion in our Bible class a little while ago as to what we would be like in the kingdom of God. How shall we be raised from the dead? Shall we all have perfect bodies or shall we be as we are at the moment? And somebody said, well, we shall recognize Jesus by the, the holes in his hands, the imprints of the nails and in his side. So he will be as he was when he was crucified. And somebody else said, well, that can't be true. We're not going to be raised from the dead with all the uh, deformities and infirmities of human nature. You see how the discussion was going on a, a human plane totally irrelevant and unimportant. It does not matter one little bit what we look like, whether we have a limb short, when we are raised from the dead in the kingdom of God, we shall be spirit creatures, no longer bounded by our bodies. The beauty, the fragrance will come from what we are, not what we look like. It won't matter one little bit what we are or what we look like in the kingdom of God. That is man's world. For the kingdom of God is concerned, we shall be like him. We shall be incorporated into his nature. And that is the important thing that really matters. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. Then, verse 7, They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine, and the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow that is, the generation of those in the millennial age will then begin to benefit from those who have passed into the kingdom age as kingdom and priests. They that dwell under the shadow shall return. 
They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine, and the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. The work of purification, sanctification, going on in the kingdom of God in those who have been selected by God because of their faithfulness. And in that day, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Oh, what a confession this is from Ephraim. What have I any more to do with idols? Oh, very well, from that particular standpoint, when the kingdom of God is here to see the worthlessness of the world and to say how great is the kingdom of God. But the important thing is to see the worthlessness of the world now. Otherwise it will be too late. The redeemed Ephraim, the redeemed ten tribes, the remnant coming out of the ten tribes, joined to the remnant from the two tribes, and joined in with the Gentiles who will also have been redeemed, will then be able to look back at the worthlessness of some of their experiences. And they will say unto God, From me is thy fruit found. That is the decision, brethren and sisters. That we will have nothing more to do with idols now. From God will our fruit be found now. The only purpose of the existence of a vine is to bear fruit. And if no fruit is born, it will be fit for nothing but to be cast into the oven and to be burned. And so this prayer, which starts in the beginning of chapter 14, comes to this situation where we turn unto the God in complete repentance and submission. And we say, we will have nothing more to do with idols. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise and he shall understand these things. Prudent and he shall know them. The ways of the Lord are right and the just walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein.